This is excerpted from my essay titled The American Sappho, A Pursuit of a Lesbian Emily Dickinson. I recently published in the Harrington Lesbian Fiction Quarterly, HLFQ, in 2002. Poetry is, in fact, the essence of things, and as such, is essential. Poetry, as Audre Lorde wrote, is not a luxury. It changes perspective. It alters reality. It influences destiny. An older woman once explained to me how, as a recent immigrant in her late teens, a line from Khalil Gibran directly changed the course of her life enabling her to pursue her education and support her family and herself. In my own experience, poetry was, and for that matter still is, a matter of survival. When I think back to the chaos that was my adolescence, I find two lines from Shakespeare embedded in my mind. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day. Despite my self-destructive behavior in my adolescence, these two lines implanted in my mind the idea that I would have a tomorrow. Thinking back, on the adolescent girls I knew who never made it into adulthood, I can't help but reflect that a tomorrow is not a pity thing to have. Emily Dickinson is myth and riddle, genius and saint, a contradiction that contains, like the lines of her poetry, ever more contradictions. If I had been introduced to her work differently, if her poems are commonly taught, the safe, accessible ones were replaced with the explosive, forbidden ones, I would have found her equally as compelling as William Shakespeare, perhaps more so. In hindsight, I can't help but think that, despite my resistance to her, more of Emily Dickinson entered my mind and psyche than I ever thought possible at the time. I was not a product of Victorian New England, nor a member of the upper middle class intelligentsia. But the fact remained that in the years of my adolescence, full of turbulence, self-preoccupation, and self-denial, Emily Dickinson and I had a few things in common. In many ways, I was as isolated as critics have depicted Emily prior to my free-willing adolescence my truest and most interesting life was lived inside the covers of books.
and even in my peer pressured ringing and dragging reveries, I was essentially alone. Like Emily, I wanted desperately to avoid a future that waited for me like a noose. For Emily, so often depicted as pathologically childlike, that future would have been a so-called mature relinquishing of herself to what was expected of womanhood, marriage, preferably with children as sedate ladylike avocations, not the lifelong passionate outpouring of poetry. Emily did have the model of Elizabeth Barrett Browning's, a favorite poet of Emily's, passionate poetic marriage to Robert Browning, which produced many love sonnets, as well as Barrett Browning's tributes to the spirit of women. But in Emily's time, Elizabeth Barrett Browning was an exception, and a hundred plus years later, when I was a teenager, heterosexual marriage was still something expected of young women from all class backgrounds. It was an expectation that was hell bent on avoiding. Like Emily, I was to go on to become a lover of women. I was out of touch with myself and my lesbian sexuality as an adolescence. A fact that stood like the eye of the serum in the midst of my self-destruction. My life was also a loaded gun, a sentiment Emily had expressed in her poem, my life had stood a loaded gun. In 10th grade, I wrote a poem that won a contest in my English class. The poem long since gone, entitled Wow Man, or something along those lines, was a typical 1970s influence ode to disillusionment culminating in the last line, there's no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. I was, in my nascent poems, and in my younger life, obsessed with death. Emily faced her preoccupations with mortality head on, as illustrated by the opening stanza of her poem, I heard a fly buzz when I died. This stillness round my form was like the stillness in the air between the heaves of storm. In Emily Dickinson's poems, death was an escape, but it was something else also, a state of its own a transformation into nothingness, a stillness at the center of everything. Her poem that begins, I felt a funeral in my brain and mourners to and fro 
kept treading, treading till it seemed that sense was breaking through. Entered my mind as I read it over and over until I, along with Emily, entered the second stanza. And when they all proceeded, a service like a drum kept beating, beating till I thought my mind was going numb. The poem was like a shawl pressed on my ear, and then the third stanza, I listened hard with Emily. And then I heard them lift a box and creak across my soul with those same boots of lead again. Then space began to toll. And relating to the coffin-sized confines of her life, I was then able to move into her expansiveness as she writes in the fourth stanza, as all the heavens were a bell, and being but an ear, and I as silence, some strange race, reckon solitary here. This is where the poem ended for me for years, since at least one version of her selected works the editor had then collected to put in the last stanza. Then one day, when I picked up the complete poems of Emily Dickinson, edited by Thomas H. Johnson, I discovered the poem's final stanza as Emily had written it. This poem had taken up residence in my mind for years, since I committed its loose, not quite rhyme, so typical to the work of Emily Dickinson with her standard ballad meters composed of alternating four and three beat lines to memory. And since the poem had become, in essence, part of my own rhythms, its meter flowing in my own breath, its cadence pounding in my blood, I can easily make the transition with her into the last stanza, and then a plank and reason broke, and I dropped down and down, and hit the world at every plunge, and finished knowing then. Emily Dickinson first entered me completely with this poem. Like Dante, I had found my guide. He had his Virgil guiding him through the realms of hell. And as for me, well, I had Emily reaching out her hand, beckoning me to walk with her to the edge of my life. When I came out as a lesbian, poetry returned me to myself. My love for women wasn't the only thing I had been suppressing. With it was my love for myself and the essence of my life force, poetry. I hadn't yet precisely put my finger on it, 
but there is something implicitly lesbian about some of the verses of Emily Dickinson. Later, I would identify it as the interiority of the language. Consider, for example, how our poem that begins Wild Nights, Wild Nights. Wild nights, wild nights, were I with thee. Wild nights should be our luxury, futile the winds to a heart in port, done with the compass, done with the chart, rowing in Eden. Ah, the sea, mighty more tonight than thee. Wild nights. Is a poem of passion, of longing, and ultimately a request by the narrator to more tonight, this mysterious thee. She longs for wild nights, intimating that she knows what they're all about, and perhaps has experienced a few of them in her time. The winds of Victorian era, Victorian era heterosexuality might have been futile, but her heart was done with a compass, done with a tort. Emily was a rule breaker, and her life refusing to marry, refusing ultimately to go out, stubbornly sitting at home, writing her poetry, and her writing, her poetry was seen as obscure, too far from the norm to be considered publishable, and then her love for women. In particular, Susan Huntington Dickinson, Emily's sister-in-law, who received the most correspondence and letter poems from the poet. The last stanza, Rowing in Eden borders on the explicitly sexual, with Emily as the agent of desire, the rower as opposed to the one who is rowed in. Her beloved is Eden, the sea, the vastness of two women together. Emily is not asking to be taken to be possessed or vanquished. Most definitely the literary metaphors used by the writers of the time, including the romantic Victorian and post-Victorian era female writers, Austen, the Bronte sisters, and later the two Georges, Sand and Elliot. Emily wishes to row to more, to rest, inside of her lover, which in realistic anatomical terms would apply that she had a woman in mind. Not surprisingly, since I've long had a thing for the passionate stirrings of lesbian poets, Emily Dickinson had gotten her hooks into me. I returned to her verses again and again, committing a few more of them to memory. I did not initially read through her work methodically back to back. 
as I had with a few writers, such as Wally Cather and James Baldwin, but Emily Dickinson as great American poet was between the lines of so many of the poets I had read, it was impossible for me not to have an image of her publicly portrayed persona in my mind. She was a spinster, a recluse dressed in white, the eternal virgin who had little, if anything, to do with the men. And now, with my mind awakened to the fact of Emily's longings for a wild nights, she had taken on quite another dimension. When I think about Emily Dickinson, I also think about Sappho. Unlike Sappho, Emily did not go down, so to speak, in history as a lesbian of note. But like Sappho, Emily had also actively pursued her desires. She had no hesitation in stating what she wanted, especially from her beloved Sue. And she also did not shrink from writing the anguish that came from having what and whom she loved so dearly withheld from her. Those, as Sappho says in one of her fragments, I know it is true, those I love best do me the most harm. Emily Dickinson never made any distinct mention of Sappho in her correspondence or her poems. Well, when I look at two of their poems side by side, there is no doubt in my mind that Sappho was an influence on Emily. Like the sweet apple turning red at the top of the highest branch, forgotten by the apple gatherers, no, not quite forgotten, for they could not reach so far. Heaven is what I cannot reach, the apple on the tree. Provided it do hopeless hang, the heaven is to me. The color on the cruising cloud, the entertained land, behind the hill, the house behind, there paradise is found. Her teasing purples, afternoons, the credulous, the coy, enamored of the conjurer that spurned us yesterday. The first is a fragment from Sappho. The second is a complete poem from Emily Dickinson. They both wrote of the apple, Sappho's highest bell, out of reach of the apple gatherers, and Emily's heaven, the place where a seemingly unattainable paradise is found. And yet she speaks of paradise as found in the house behind. 
Is she telling us something then? This she and Sue did have their piece of paradise. Sue and Austin's house was slightly behind and to the side of the family home where Emily lived. Sue was said to have been lovers with Emily. And Sue's husband, Austin, who was Emily's brother, had a mistress. The her who's teasing purples afternoons. Might well have been Sue, the inhabitant of the house. And if there's pleasure, which is obvious from the poems, there is also, as evidenced from the poems, torture. There was husband, the children, and no doubt the reluctance of Sue to climb too far out on a limb for the eccentric Emily. Sappho, too, wrote some of her best love poems for women who live far away or who were otherwise unattainable. Thank you.